0: Early in the Vietnam War, a section of jungle called War Zone D, as in Delta, was one tough stretch of enemy-infested ground. It was a a secret zone about which Allied intelligence knew almost nothing about, except to stay away. Conventional Allied infantry units never went near it. Until eventually allied intelligence decided it was time to invade the enemy's sanctuary. It was crunch time. Of course no ordinary unit could do. This operation... Required another level of intensity and experience. This was a mission that would demand the very best. And chosen were 13 hand picked American Green Berets. And a company sized element of highly trained and trusted Cambodian guerrilla fighters. Through several weeks and dozens of firefights without any artillery support or any chance of reinforcements, these soldiers fought. 51, that's a lot, 51 combat engagements, directed tactical airstrikes on 27 critical targets, and raided numerous base camps of much larger enemy units. They focused on their mission and stayed at it, until it was accomplished. When the mission faces its most critical moments, it's time to step up the intensity. And for Jesus, as he enters into the last week of his earthly ministry, he does just that. This morning, we are beginning a brand new six-week series called The Last Week. The Last Week, where from the Gospel of Matthew, we will look at the last week of the Lord's earthly ministry to include... His crucifixion and resurrection. And this might come as a complete surprise to you. That one third of the gospels, one third is devoted to the last week of Christ. Since we're going to be in Matthew for several weeks, I thought I would begin by telling you a little bit about the man who wrote what would become the first book in the arrangement of the New Testament. Matthew, who was also called Levi, was a Jew. Who was hated by his own people. Considered scum of the earth. On the level of a leper. Because he had collected money, taxes, for the Romans. And presumably took a little extra for himself. Matthew was a traitor as far as the Jews were concerned. But one day he met Jesus. He rose up from his tax booth and he left it all behind to follow him. For Matthew, everything had changed. And now later as an apostle, one of the original twelve, surprisingly chosen by Jesus, a man who once took from his own people, he now wants to give back to the Jews by sharing the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, their long-awaited Messiah, who came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Matthew wrote his gospel for a Jewish audience. A Jewish audience revealing that Jesus is in fact... Their king. Not a king who would come to defeat the Romans right then and there as they had hoped, but a king who had come to defeat a much greater enemy Satan, sin, and spiritual. Now for the setting. The last week of the Lord's ministry actually begins with his triumphal entry into the capital of Jerusalem. The capital city of Jerusalem. And it just so happens to be the time for the annual Passover celebration where some two million people, maybe more, from all over are jammed into the city to commemorate the great deliverance of Israel from Egypt when the Passover lambs were sacrificed to save the firstborn of Israel. If you recall, this was the final plague from God that broke the Pharaoh's hardened heart, paving the way for the Israelites to leave Egypt for the promised land. So that's the setting. And if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, and we will begin with verse 1. Matthew 21, verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem... And had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately, he will send them. Jesus and his disciples are making their way to Jerusalem from the east. From Jericho. And they come to a small village about two miles from Jerusalem called Bethphage. Which means the house of unripe figs. And as you can see on the map, is there a map behind me? As you can see on the map, this village is situated on the east southeast side of the Mount of Olives. You see that? The Mount of Olives. If you remember the Mount Mount of Olives is a very prominent place in history and in the future of Israel and of God's people. For example, the Garden of Gethsemane Is situated at the foot of the mount. It's a place where Jesus often went with his disciples, and it's the place where he will be arrested. We know this. The mount is the place from which Jesus ascends into heaven after his resurrection, and it will also be the place where he returns. At his second coming. In this passage. It's the place. Where Jesus. Is about to do something. He has never done before publicly. Something he has repeatedly. Cautioned others not to do for him. He's going to publicly reveal himself as the Messiah and King they have been waiting for. On that day, Jesus sends two disciples on ahead to find a donkey and her young unridden colt. They were to untie them and bring them to Jesus. And if anyone asked what they were doing, they were to say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately, he will send them. You see, Jesus knew where the animals were supposed to be. And he knew they would be given to him, maybe As a subtle uh, subtle reminder to everyone else that he was in complete control. Even during the darkest times of this last week. And as we know from Luke. It happened just as Jesus said it would happen. The owner Asked the two disciples what they were doing with his donkeys. And they answered exactly as Jesus told them to answer. And they were allowed to take them. Now as you know, Jesus has been walking or sailing everywhere during his ministry. So why does he need a donkey when he's only two miles away from Jerusalem? There are two things I want to point out. First, most people think of a donkey as being nothing but a humble beast of burden. A pack animal. But in Jewish history, a donkey was looked upon as an animal fit for a king. In the ancient Middle Eastern world, it was a common practice that kings rode horses if they went to war or wanted to portray themselves as mighty conquerors. But they rode donkeys if they came in peace. And Jesus is coming to bring peace. Secondly, Jesus needed the donkey so that he might fulfill Old Testament prophecy given by Zechariah some 500 years earlier. And instead of reading from Matthew, for the sake of context, I want to take you to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 9 and 10. This time from the New Living Translation, okay? Different version I typically use. We read in verse 9. <clears throat> Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble. Riding on a donkey. Riding On a donkey's colt. That's pretty much what Matthew quoted. Right? Pretty much what Matthew quoted. But let's continue with the next verse of this prophecy. Verse 10. I will remove... The battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea. And from the Euphrates River to the ends of. Of the earth. So we are told. That the king will come on a donkey's colt to Jerusalem. He's bringing peace with him. But as we can also see in this prophecy. That peace comes on the heels of war. The war to end all wars. Meaning. This prophecy from Zechariah is a dual prophecy. It's a dual prophecy. Yes, the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem was a fulfillment at his first coming. But the other part is a fulfillment at his second coming. Where he returns in power and glory to reign over the earth. Now, <clears throat> before we move away from the subject of prophecy. I want to share another prophecy. From the book of Daniel. I love Daniel. Or the Book of Daniel, because there is something in that book which is very pertinent to the timing of this last week of Christ. <clears throat> in Daniel chapter nine, <clears throat> let me set this up. In Daniel chapter nine, daniel, Daniel Daniel <clears throat> was praying. For his people, the Jews. That's important. He's praying for the Jews. For they were in captivity in Babylon. That's where Daniel's at. And while praying, God sends his angel, Gabriel, to give Daniel some comforting words. And in these words, he is told there will come a time when the Jews finally repent and turn to their Messiah for the forgiveness of sin and their Messiah will establish his earthly kingdom and bring everlasting righteousness. Everything will be made right. For us, that is a reference to the second coming of Christ. Okay? The angel Gabriel tells Daniel that all of this, hear me, all of this will occur in 70 weeks. Weeks is a word for seven. Like dozen is a word for 12. And when taken together, we are looking at 70, 70, seven year periods. Which equates to, for you math wizards... 490 years. Okay? You with me? Then beginning in Daniel chapter 9 verse 25. It should be up there. We are told, this is so cool. We are told when this 490 year calendar starts. Verse 25, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Here, Gabriel reveals two out of three segments of this 490 year period. You with me? The first segment is seven weeks. Seven weeks. Or we could say seven sevens. Weeks stands for seven. Seven sevens, which equates to 49 years. 49 years, and it begins with a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. This decree was made in March of 445 BC when King Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah, you know the story, gave Nehemiah permission safe passage and the necessary supplies to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. Remember that? How Nehemiah starts. The second segment given by Gabriel is sixty two weeks or sixty two sevens or four hundred and thirty four years. It begins after the first segment. Okay, It begins after the first segment and it takes us right up to the last week of Christ beginning with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem to the day. Only the true Messiah could present himself like this with perfect timing. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And for the poor souls whose brains are working overtime with the math. When you add up the two segments together, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the Lord's triumphal entry into that same city, you come up with 69 sevenths or 483 years. We started with 490 years, did we not? And 483 have come and gone. So what happened to the remaining seven years? Good question. Well, because the Jews cut off their Messiah, as described in Daniel. They rejected and crucified him during the last week. The calendar stopped for the Jews and the church age was ushered in for us. And for those seven years which remain, the third segment... We call those seven years the tribulation period. A time after the church age, a time primarily intended for the Jews. To repent and turn to Jesus as their true Messiah and King before he returns to this earth to set up his kingdom. Now just to let you know, if I rushed that, this summer we are going to tackle the book of Daniel. And we will look at this in much more detail, okay? We'll do the math again. I'll be a little slower this time. Anyway, let's get back to Matthew. So Jesus is revealing himself publicly as the Messiah and King to fulfill prophecy. But there is another reason he is doing this. It's crunch time. It's crunch time. And Jesus is dialing up the intensity with this public display to force the hand of the Jewish religious leaders to act against him now. Instead of waiting till after the Passover celebration as they would prefer. You see Jesus is the true lamb of God. The perfect. The approved lamb that God has sent to take away the sin of the world. And on this very Passover it is ordained. That he sacrificially offer himself as a payment for sin and to satisfy the wrath of God. Beginning with verse 6. Matthew tells us, the disciples went and did just as Jesus instructed them. And brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. We're told the disciples went and found everything just as Jesus had told them then they brought the donkey and her young colt back to him they put their own coats and outer garments on the donkeys as crude as a crude saddle and as prophesied Jesus got on the colt He got on the colt and began to make his way towards the city. People on the road were overcome with emotion and at this special moment as Jesus was being treated as the king they had longed for. These were people who had followed Jesus from Galilee who had seen him resurrect Lazarus from the dead only a few days before. And they were pilgrims visiting the city for Passover. Granted, they only had a partial understanding of who Jesus really was and what he was doing, but it was exciting to them. And taking their cues from the disciples, they quickly began ripping off their own coats, laying them on the road into the city for their king. Others began cutting down branches from nearby palm trees and spreading them on the road, all part of giving Jesus their version of the red carpet treatment. At this point... Jesus has not said a word about himself. And quite frankly, he does not need to. In verse 9, we are told. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. During his earthly ministry, Jesus normally moved quietly among the people. But not this time. Not now. We're told there were crowds going on before him and crowds who were following him. It was a snowball effect. They were welcoming and receiving him, at least for the moment. Offering shouts of praise from Psalm 118. A psalm which celebrated Israel's deliverance from captivity. In praise they shouted, Hosanna, which literally means, save now. Save now. Jesus, save us now. Overthrow our enemies, the Romans, now. Deliver us from captivity now. Establish your earthly kingdom now. That's what the Jews expected from their Messiah and King. Jesus, save us now. Hosanna. And here's the thing that's exactly what he came to do, but not in the way they expected or understood. Not a single Jew, to include the Lord's own disciples, understood that before the king could reign, he first had to redeem. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Yes, Jesus is the rightful heir of King David's throne. He's the son of David, which is a messianic title. He has the power to save. They were praising the name of the Lord and do not realize that the Lord is in their midst. Again, the people did not fully understand who Jesus really was and what he had come to do for them. It was difficult for people, even those closest to Jesus, to understand that his ride into Jerusalem as the prophesied King and Messiah was not to ascend to the throne, but rather to be lifted up on a cross. They did not understand. They had no idea. Then beginning in verse 10, Matthew tells us this. When they entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. As Jesus entered the city, the city was stirred. The Greek word for stirred is where we get our English word for seismic. From all the commotion, the city was quaking. It was moving with excitement. It was stirring with anticipation. And the result was the crowds who were in Jerusalem for Passover began to ask one another, Who in the world is this man who has come into the city? The city was shaking because of Jesus. But they don't know who they're talking about. The popular opinion by most of the crowds was that Jesus was the prophet from Nazareth. And yes, he was the prophet, but he was much more. Luke tells us <clears throat> that as Jesus approached, The city this day, amongst all the uproar and commotion going on around him, Jesus was weeping. For he knew the people did not really know who he was or what he had come to do for them. Many were simply caught up in the moment. Jesus knew these people had an image, an image of him, and they had expectations of how he was supposed to act on their behalf. He's supposed to act in the way they think he is supposed to act. He's supposed to kick out the Romans. And establish his earthly kingdom right then and there. (laughs) Jesus knew he would not meet their expectations. Because their expectations were wrong. And the people would become disillusioned and doubtful of him. To the point that in a matter of days... They would not be shouting Hosanna. They would be shouting crucify him. Crucify him. They do not know who Jesus really is and what he had come to do. We call this the Lord's triumphal entry. But in many ways. It was a tragic one. I want to circle back to that question being circulated in Jerusalem. Because it's a question for us as well. A question I cannot answer for you. Who is this? Who is this Jesus to you? For some, Jesus might be this wise teacher who shared some good stuff about living. But he has no claim on your life. You can ignore him if you want. To others, Jesus might be this genie who is out of the bottle. To do what you want him to do and to give you whatever you want. Of course, that doesn't happen, does it? So, you're often angry with him when things don't go your way. Ooh. To some, Jesus is a loving friend who always wants to make you happy, never offending, never confronting. Never asking you to do anything difficult, because how loving is that? On the other end of the spectrum, maybe Jesus to you is always angry, constantly judging and belittling you pointing his finger and picking you apart piece by piece, never satisfied with you, never gracious. I know that Jesus all too well, unfortunately. If that's what you think about Jesus, then you got the wrong Jesus. Someone once said this about him. He's the bread of life who began his ministry hungering. He's the water of life who ended his ministry thirsting. Jesus hungered as a man, but he fed the hungry as God. He grew weary, and yet he is our rest. He paid taxes, but he is the king. Jesus was called a devil, but he cast out demons. He prayed, and yet he hears prayers. He wept, but he dries our tears. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, and yet he redeems sinners. He was led as a lamb to slaughter, but he is the good shepherd. Jesus gave his life, and by doing so, he destroyed the penalty of death. Jesus is the div- divine Son of God, God in the flesh, who came to dwell with man, and then as the perfect sacrificial lamb once and for all he offered himself as full payment for sin to satisfy the wrath of God. He's the king of kings the lord of lords the long awaited messiah the prophet the high priest who intercedes for his people and the savior who seeks and saves the lost. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And one day soon, he's coming back to make things right and to establish his kingdom on the earth. And here's the most amazing thing. Jesus knows you. He knows you. He knows everything about you. Nothing is hidden from Him. He knows you. And in spite of you, He loves you. And he wants you to know him. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this time in your word. Father, I pray that it brought honor and glory to you. I pray, Lord, that Jesus was lifted up and and magnified. That's what we want to do. I pray, Lord, that our worship was pleasing to you. And, Father, I pray that whatever was said here, we would take beyond these doors. May you be honored and glorified, for you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I just shared a story with you that should be rather familiar to you you've heard it every year typically on Palm Sunday which would be the Sunday before Easter right? you've heard this story Let me ask you a question. Does it matter? Does it matter? Does it matter to you? Is it just a story? Does it matter to you? if you say yes, how does it matter? How should it matter? Those are some tough questions, isn't it? If Jesus is my king, if he is the king of kings, if he is the Lord of lords, he someone say the word Lord and no do not go together. Think about that. Yes, you are my Lord. get behind me when you raise your hand. I've done that. And I'm your pastor. Something has to change in my heart, in my life. And if that's true of me, I know it's true of you. Our lives should be different. If you are our King and our Lord, obligated to follow Him and to obey Him and to trust Him and to love Him. Does that make sense? Maybe you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your King and your Lord. I would love to introduce you to Him. You may not love him, but I can tell you he loves you. He is madly in love with you, so much so that he went to a cross for you. That's how much he loves you. (coughs) Maybe you're looking for a church home. We are what we are. We're about to have it. Or maybe, you know what, you just need somebody to pray with. I would love to pray with you. If not here, you'll find me in the kitchen later on. <laughs> Where I'll be. How the Lord leads you? And if He is leading you, then respond. Just do what He says. Just do what He says. Larry,